I guess this morning I'm first, Jerry. So this time, you're up next. Today we've, uh, Timothy, like I said, gave us the, uh, since we have three elders dividing up the, the sermons, he gave us the topic of the Trinity to look into. And we're not going to tell you which one each of us is talking about ahead of time. By the time you get to David, you'll probably figure out his. So, but we're going to look into the Trinity, and what better place to start than at the beginning? In Genesis 1.1, the whole account of the Trinity, the whole account of God, begins with four little words. In the beginning, God. So this little four-word statement here, not even the whole sentence, just the beginning of it, tells us two important things about God. First of all, we see his attribute, attribute that he is eternal. He was already there at the beginning. It was the beginning of the earth's time. It was the beginning of creation that he was there and he created the world. Also, the name used at this time for God is Elohim. This is a plural noun. It shows that there were other members of the Godhead that were present at creation. In verse 2, we see the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, moving above the waters. In verse 3, God the Father says, let there be light. I read one account where it, it said God spoke it and Jesus accomplished it. What I read in the Bible is God spoke it and it happened. Jesus was there because we see in John 1 that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, showing that the Son was there at the beginning. He had the same eternal attribute as the Father. Although for 33 years he set that aside and took on the, the body of man to accomplish God's purpose. And in our scripture reading this morning at the other end of the book, we had a, a view of the, the whole trinity together. The Father sitting on the throne with the deed to the earth ready to be given. The seven spirits of God were in attendance with all those assembled. And the Lamb that was slain came to take the scroll. He was the only one able to take the scroll. He was the only one who had paid the price for that, that deed. And it says the Lamb received honor and glory. If the Lamb, if Jesus was not God... He could not have received honor and glory in the very throne room of the Father. This shows that Jesus was, along with the Spirit and the Father, part of the Trinity. So this morning, by process of elimination, they chose first, um, I'll be looking at the Father. So what is it about God the Father? Is He stronger? Is He more godly than the center of the Spirit? Well, no, they're all fully God. The Father is God, but He's not the Son. The Son is God, but He's not the Father. And the Spirit is God, but He's not the other two. They're all equal in power. It's their position, as we see it, that sets God, that sets God the Father above. There's a hierarchy in the Godhead. There's a sense of order that is passed on to mankind to show orderly submission. In John 10:25, Jesus says he does all his works in the Father's name. The Father sent him to do the works. He tells his listeners that my sheep hear my voice and I know them in 27 and in 29 how he got those sheep, how he got those followers, my Father has given them to me. And in verse 30, he sets up the battle line with the religious leaders of the time. He clearly states, I and the Father are one. He takes his claim as God before the religious leaders. The next line says, and they prepared to stone him. He had just committed blasphemy as far as they could see. But this was Emmanuel, this was God living among us and teaching some great lessons to both the, the general public and to the religious leaders of the day. 
So what is God the father of? Well, God's the father of creation and of mankind. His crowning achievement on the, on the time of creation, the six days of creation, was when he created man. And it's in Genesis 1.26, we have reference to the Trinity, reference to the triune God. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And it's finished in, in 27 where it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is not like a friend of one of my, co- my employees. She was talking to me the other day. Just, just timing. I've always wondered what to call when somebody has uh, changed genders. And she calls this person them or they. She, has, she, she doesn't call them male or female. She says they. Well, when God created them, he designed two separate individuals to begin mankind. It wasn't he created a male and each one of male and female. He created a male and he created a female. And because he was a, the, the father of creation and he's the father of, and he created the male and female, he's the father of the family. He is the head father of the family. He instituted the family. He made the woman out of man as a helper. In verse 28, he tells, us, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And like every other creature in creation, they would continue off, making offspring according to their own kind. God is the father of a chosen nation, a chosen race. In his sovereignty, he called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees. He called them out of idol worship. He promised him a land and said, let's go, I'll show you where this is going to be. And Abraham left his family's place and went and had adventure after adventure. In his sovereignty, he opened Sarah's womb so that the child of promise to Abraham and Sarah could be born. In his sovereignty... He chose Jacob over his twin Esau, even though Esau was the elder. In his sovereignty, he chose the youngest son of Jesse's sons, David, to be the king over Israel, to be the king that the eternal king will sit on the throne of. We're told that he would take David's throne, the king of kings. He's not only sovereign and... and, can do this. He's independent. He's self-existent. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. And when he was talking with Moses, it was at the burning bush. And Moses like, I can go, I can go tell, but who do I tell him sent me? Who do I tell Israel sent me? And it was two little words. Tell them, I am has sent you. I am. Not I was. Not I will be, but I am. This is the eternal God. The name here is used as Yahweh, which is also written, or in the New Testament is sometimes written as Adonai. And this is the one that when you see it in the Bible is written capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the God. This is the name they were afraid in Israel to say for fear they would say it wrong and come under punishment and judgment. God is a personal God. From the time he created Adam and Eve, he wanted a relationship with his creation. We were created in his image. Adam and Eve severed that that relationship, and God had to take drastic steps to restore it. He wants the relationship with us. We are his glory. He's, an invi- he's the invisible God. Jesus had told his followers, when you see me, you've seen the Father. Because the Father can't be seen. Moses really desired to see God's face. But God told him, no man can see my face and live. So he came up with a compromise. He put Moses in a cleft of a rock 
As he passed by, he covered it with his hand. And once he was gone, he removed his hand. He unveiled it. And Moses could see the glory of God as it passed from the back, but not his face. God is the Father of love. He eternally gives of himself for others. So much that John 3.16 said, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And had his son die for his enemies, not his friends. <clears throat> had, his, had him die for his enemies. That is love. And Jesus tells us, continues on with that, we are to love our neighbors, we're to pray for those who persecute us. So God's attribute of love is one that he can pass on to us and he can command to us. God was the father or is the father of an obedient son. In the garden, Jesus prayed, if you're willing to remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus knew what he had in store as this little, little time that he was mortal. He knew what he had in store and what was coming for him. And, hey, if there's another way, yeah, I'll take it. But your will be done. He, he was an obedient son. He came to do the Father's will. And because of his love, because of his obedient son, God is the Father of salvation. Why did God send his son? So that the world might be saved. He cares about his creation so much, he sacrificed his own. Why did the Son willingly lay aside his eternity and his glory for a short 33-year time? 33 years in comparison with eternity, very short time. These were just the ultimate expressions of his love. It was to appease God's character, his justice, to appease his wrath, and to find a way, without this happening, no one could be cleansed of their sins. No one could measure up to God's standard. No one could enter heaven and no one could ever be saved. This is the ultimate expression of love for the people that you created and who have turned against you. God is a father of truthfulness and faithfulness. He set the standard for truth. He gave Moses the Ten Commandments that nobody could even follow. It is against his nature to not be truthful. He cannot not be truthful. His very word is truth. And that's why we're all here today, because we, we're here and we believe that. His faithfulness to his word means that he will keep his promises. Without God being truthful, okay, what... We get, we get to heaven and he says, okay, well, yeah, you misunderstood that. I didn't say that. Yeah, never mind. You know, you, you don't get entrance. No, without God being truthful and without God's attribute of being extremely faithful, our salvation, we couldn't count on. So the fact that he is truthful, he is faithful, is extremely important. Uh, important attributes of his. God's the father of, he's a merciful, gracious, and peaceful father. God's patient. In 2 Peter 3 9, it says, The Lord is slow to anger, the Lord is slow to fulfill his promise, as some, not as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. He's wanting salvation to come to as many as will, will receive it. And he's patient to wait. We've been over 2,000 years now. And he's still patiently waiting. God is merciful. He gives his goodness to those in misery and distress. He gives help. In our Sunday school lesson this morning, one of the uh, objections to Christianity, God is a crutch. Religion is a crutch. Yeah, he gives his crutch to those who people, the, to those that need to lean on, and that he needs to support. 
God is graceful. He gives his goodness to those who deserve only punishment. He would have the right, as in the, the time of the flood, to just wipe everybody out. But he gives his goodness to those who he chooses to give it to, even though they don't deserve it. And God is the Father of peace. 1 Corinthians 14.33 tells us, God is not a confu- God of confusion, but of peace. He's not trying to trick us. He's not trying to... Uh, give us a a set of rules and see if we can measure up even though he hasn't given us all the rules we need. God's given us his entire word. God is the Father who provides. He provides our needs. He provides some of our wants. He gives us blessings that we don't deserve. This this name for God used here is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. God provides what we need, and it says in the Bible, Do not be anxious. What shall we eat or what shall we drink? Your Heavenly Father knows that you need, all, that you need them all. God provides the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He's even providing for those that are still in opposition to Him. Again, a gracious, loving Father. So God's the Father of creation and mankind of Israel, of salvation. Of the, he's the father of the Jews and Gentiles both. He's adopted us as sons and daughters, brought us into his, his promises to Israel, and he's adopted us as sons and daughters. He's reached out to us, even though we're outside his, his chosen nation. He is the father of love, of peace, one who provides, gracious, merciful, and loving. And he is the father of the obedient son who came to do his father's will, the father of our very Savior. So, as we're looking into the Trinity this morning, we must visit the baptism of Jesus in Mark 1 9 to 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. I just got one page here, so this will only take a little bit. Um, the only the good part about doing this in three steps is that you might get some notes that are going to be come from the person before you, Jerry, <clears throat> which is fine because we're talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one and three, and three and one. So you're going to hear some information, probably from all three of us, right, Dave? <laughs> So the question is, oh, I did get a couple books from the pastor talking about Christ. And one of them was, is Jesus in the Old Testament? So I'm going to focus on a lot of the information that came from the Old Testament and from the New Testament, but a lot of it from the Old Testament. And I'm going to read this because if I don't, I'm going to really be way too long and Dave won't have any time then. So the question is, who is Jesus Christ? Is he who he claims to be? When Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is in Matthew chapter 16, they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and another said Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Verse 15 in this chapter, he specifically asked them, but who do you say that I am. And you know the answer in verse 16. Simon Peter famously said these words, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I want you to say it with me. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. One more time. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Jesus' very words are a proclamation of His deity. In John 8:58, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Right after He gave the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mountain, in Matthew chapter 15, there are six times in the rest of the chapter where He says these words, You have heard that it was said. Then he says, But I say unto you. I believe he's speaking with authority as the Son of God. But I say unto you. Chiseled in marble are these words, Latin inscription says, I am what I was, God. I was not what I am, man. I am now called both God and man. The very words of Jesus claimed that He was and is God. In John 17:5, He spoke of the glory He had with the Father before the world existed. Glorify me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. Also in John 16:27 and 28, He says, For the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and I have come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. In a few verses here, He is claiming His preexistence in a very explicit term. Have you ever read just the the red letters in in the New Testament? Maybe I ought to. Next time, count how many times he proclaims his deity in one way or another in those, in those red letters. There are many names given to Jesus in Scripture. And I'm going to read some passages from the Old Testament and, uh, and how they're fulfilled in the New Testament. In Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22 through 31 sounds very much like Christ is spoken of as the wisdom of God. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there was no depth, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth before he had made the earth with its fields, are the first of the deaths of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there when he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he had made firms of skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundation of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Here's where Jer and I kind of hit it off again here in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. So we're seeing a lot of words here with proclaiming words, defining Christ. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The word is mentioned in Revelation 19 also, which declares in verse 13, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which He is called is the Word of God. Verses 11 through 16 talk of someone sitting on a white horse who is called faithful and true. So wisdom in Proverbs 8 is asserted the same way that He is called the Word in John Chapter 1. 
Jesus himself talked about what the Old Testament had to say about him. When he was talking to the two men on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, verse 27 said, he said, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When they say all the scriptures, they're talking about basically the Old Testament. Moses' own words in Deuteronomy chapter 18, starting with verse 15, says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And he continues, It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in which they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command you. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself require of him. Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ. A prophet like me, like Moses. When Moses was with God on Mount Sinai, here we go again, Jerry, Jesus spoke to him in Exodus chapter 33, saying, You cannot see my face, for men shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take my hand, and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So it says in Exodus chapter 34, verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face showed brightly because he had been talking with God. But he did not see God face to face. He saw only his back, but yet his face shone. In Matthew 17, when Jesus took Peter and James and John up on a high mountain, He was transfigured there before them. And His face shone like the sun. And His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Him. Were they comparing notes about the reflection, the the glow on them? No, of course not. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish... I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It's interesting that Peter is the one that said, I will make three tents. That was his occupation, wasn't it? While he was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, with divine glory, excuse me, the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen. To him. Jesus shone with divine glory, just as Moses had done also on a mountain earlier. But, I might add, Moses was only external, a reflection of God's glory. Whereas I believe the brilliant light on Jesus came from within, because he's the Son of God. The voice from heaven was God himself proclaiming to the three disciples, This is Jesus, his son, of who he was well pleased. Then he said to them, and I'm going to say it again, Listen to him. Moses also told the people, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. He is called a star in Balaam's final oracle in Numbers chapter 24, verses 16 and 17. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him now, but not, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. This ties in with Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, 
when the wise men ask, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw, and you look it up, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The prophetic words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel. Matthew 1, verse 22 and 23 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Took place. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... Thank you. Again in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called... We've heard these verses so many times, haven't we? Jesus is being called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Praise the Lord, huh? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 59.20 says, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, called a Redeemer, to those in Jacob who turn from transgressions, declares the Lord. In Isaiah, there's so many chapters that talk about Christ. The prophetic words of Ze- in Zechariah 9, chapter 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Let me say that again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having the salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Where was this fulfilled at? Matthew 21. It was pro- prophesied that he would come from the lineage of David. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, it says that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. A stump. Matthew chapter 1 talks about the genealogy of Jesus through Jesse and David. Going back to Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 8, and chapter 6, 12 through 14, also speak of the branch. One more Old Testament, well, maybe more than that, I guess. I'm going to want to draw a prophecy from regarding Jesus. That he was born in Bethlehem is found in Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Erephathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Okay, one of my favorite chapters about Jesus, I'm sure probably one of yours too, is in Isaiah 53. Prophesies his death and resurrection in these words. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet he, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong." because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, with you and me. Yet he bore the sin of many 
and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus promised in John chapter 14 that He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself that where I am you may be also. Now Jesus promises not only that He will be with them, because the Father is with Him, and the Father will be them, but He asks the Father and He will give Him another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of Truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. The words of Jesus are so comforting to the disciples because He's not leaving them empty-handed. Verse 25 of John chapter 4 says these things. These things I have spoken to you while I am still alive with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Okay, the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to focus in on John chapter 16. So for this morning, I'm going to talk about the third person of the Holy Trinity, of the, of the, Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to focus in on the work of the Holy Spirit. And our passage this morning to look at will be in John chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn to John chapter 16. And I want to give you a little introduction of the Holy Spirit to refresh our memory. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is fully God and is co-equal with God. And remember that the Holy Spirit is worthy of all our praise and worship. And it should be like that. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Holy Scriptures, as you remember And also Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as a helper, as Jerry shared just earlier. And he's going to send this helper. So what is this all about? Well, let's take a look at that this morning. Okay, so to give you a little background of what's going on, Jesus had been teaching his disciples many things. And the last few chapters here, coming up to John chapter 16, and you'll see all all you know, Jesus is about ready to be arrested and soon to be crucified. And the disciples are following him around and listening to, to all his teaching. And they're taking all this in and they're experiencing a little bit of sorrow and confusion. They don't know what's about ready to take place. And I think they're very scared and not sure what's going on and what's going to happen. And they're in the state of stress. And you'll see that starting, you'll, you'll probably see that they're starting to, to do a lot of wondering. The, the bolded words there are ones that you can underline or circle in your Bible, just as a little tip. So let's start with verse 1 in John chapter 16. I'll read each verse and then I'll give a little commentary about each one and then we'll wrap it up. I have said, these, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So Jesus is saying here, look, things are going to get really dicey. And, and it's going to get dicey really quick. And I want you to know, I'm, I'm trying to let you know, be prepared, to let you be prepared and let you know in advance that, that you're not going to be caught off guard here. What's about ready to happen? And I don't want any of you falling away because of the persecution. So I'm just trying to warn all of you ahead of time to just trust me. Okay, verse 2. 
They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. So imagine if you're one of these disciples listening to what Jesus is teaching them. Jesus is telling them, hey, by the way, you're not going to be welcome in the synagogues anymore. And that was a big deal for the Jews at that time. The synagogues were a special place of, 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 of a special holy place in their culture. And now they're going to be, they're not going to be welcomed. And in fact, you're going to be thrown out. And in fact, it will be so bad that the, for the disciples that you're going to understand, you're going to have to understand that some of these Jews just don't get it and, this, and that they're going to kill, they could possibly kill you and they will think that that's a service to God for doing that. And it's horrible. It's a horrible situation. Verse 3. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And again, Jesus is teaching them that the, that the Jewish people, these people surrounding us are so confused about God that they don't even recognize me as the Son. And I'm not just warning, I, I'm, I'm just warning you now that I'm, I'm the focus of persecution right now. But after I leave, I'm going to the Father, and you're going to become the focus of the persecution. And we almost see that today, don't we? Maybe not so much here in the United States, but other parts of the world. And I think here in the United States, it's hard for us to under, maybe understand this verse because we don't have a lot of persecution. And in general, we are very, in a very safe environment. And I would say we can share our views and not have our churches burned down. Okay, verse 4. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus again is reminding what lies ahead and telling them the truth. Remember all of you disciples, I'm predicting a lot of persecution. It's going to fall on you now. And it's going to be taken off of me because I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be at the right hand of the Father. And then if you notice in this passage, Jesus has not told them earlier in the ministry. And there was no need to do that. And not to scare them to death at the, at the time until until he taught them about the, the things he wanted to teach them. But he needs to reveal to them this so that they are not caught off guard, this intense persecution that's about ready to come. Verse 5. Now we're in the work of the Holy Spirit. But I, I am now, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Jesus stop, stops and asks, why are you not asking me more about what's going, on, what's going to happen here? Of course, we know the disciples are probably very confused in their minds, and they're probably all focusing on, on, on them right now instead of Jesus. They know he's leaving. They don't understand why. He has to leave, and Jesus is a little disappointed that they're not asking more questions here. So... We're going to find out what happens. Verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So we see here the disciples had great sorrow for the trouble that was about ready to come upon them. As Jesus was teaching them to be prepared and get ready, and I'm warning you that this is going to happen, I don't want you to fall away. And at this moment, the disciples almost had a little bit of the focus taken off of them. Take, excuse me, taken off of Jesus and on them for a moment instead of the focus on Jesus. Verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For, I, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, so think of it this way. Jesus is leaving them. They're scared to death right now. 
because of all the persecution that's going to be coming. And he's warning them that he's going to come upon them and they're probably just trying to stay alive at this, in, in this whole thing. And Jesus is promising them, hey, I'm going and I'm going to send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. And I think the disciples were thinking, well, why can't you just stay with us? I mean, why do you have to go and send this helper? But if you think about it, it's much better if Jesus goes and sends this helper in spirit. As the persecution was ramping up, if Jesus is with one of those disciples and the others are all by themselves, they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit and or Jesus with them. But if Jesus goes and sends this helper in spirit, the Holy Spirit, being God and dwelling in them, we as believers, as Christians then, the Holy Spirit can be with each one of us all at the same time, all enduring the persecution that takes place. It's kind of an interesting concept to, to think about. Okay, verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And in this verse, we're talking about to convict. And it's not, from my understanding, to convict as in a court of law definition or a traditional definition. Here, convict means more in that the Holy Spirit is going to convince the world it needs for a Savior of its sin and righteous and judgment. Remember that Jesus is the judge, but the Father and the Holy Spirit is going to convince the world of their sin. Verse 9. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me, the Father and the Holy Spirit is going to convince the world of their sin, and at the time, men, don't, men didn't want to hear that they had a sin problem. Nobody wants to hear that. They thought at the time, I'm just going to do good works and all my works will find favor with God through my good works, by keeping the law. But the law doesn't save us. Holy Spirit is letting everyone know, convincing them that you folks do have a sin problem. That's the problem. Okay, verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning righteousness, we know the Savior was righteous. If you remember, there were men who claimed that Jesus had a demon. But that's not true. God has the final word and says, My son is righteous. God proves to this to everyone in the resurrection of his son Jesus. So he shows the world that he was right and the world was wrong. The Holy Spirit witnesses to this fact that the world was wrong all along and that Christ was right. Christ is the righteous one. Verse 11, concerning judgment because the ruler of, the world, of this world is judged. Here in this verse, Jesus is talking about the ruler of this world and the concerning of judgment. Basically, all this starts back, if you all remember back in Genesis chapter 3, Right, the ruler of this world, the ultimate liar, lies to everyone and, and tells them that they can sin and there's no consequences for it. The Holy Spirit comes along and convicts the world. And yes, the whole problem is there. It is sin in the world. And the sin has consequences. And the standard that you have to meet is God's law. And the Holy Spirit is telling the world that all this has already been judged in a court of law and God's law. Verse 12, I, have, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus said you can't bear it right all right now. The main principle of teaching is to teach a little bit at a time, not to overwhelm the students or the disciples too much. So he was telling them, I've given you enough information right now. I can't give you any more. You're just not going to be able to bear it. I'm going to send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. Soon the work of the Holy Spirit is going to inspire further scripture to help guide you later on. 
It's important to note, don't forget, that the Holy Spirit came about 40 days after all this was taking place. Verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. It is the truth for all ages. It, it guides God's people and all the truthful things they need to know about everything that the Father and Son say and speak. The Holy Spirit shares with the disciples. The disciples write all this down by the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit or the hand of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the main idea of the Holy Spirit or the work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ. I really love the Holy Spirit reveals all these great things. Reveals it to the believers, us as believers. So many great truths and things to share. You can never get enough of it, right? In verse 15. All that the Father has in mind, therefore I said to you, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here we have the Father and the Holy Spirit shares with the disciples all the glorious things and the ministries and offices and the fullness of the Lord Jesus. This is the complete and work of the Holy Spirit and one of the many things that the Holy Spirit does and it's absolutely miraculous. So what's the bottom line? We have this picture here in chapter 16 of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of Jesus and the Spirit of Jesus lives in us. And as we do this together, as we do ministry together, the Spirit of Jesus supernaturally wakes us up, helps us in this unbelieving world. Whatever background we have, the Holy Spirit helps us to know how to stay on mission, to be proclaimers of this life-changing message that we have, the gospel, and yes, we're going to be hated. You'll be spit on. You're going to be made fun of. You'll be persecuted. You'll be an outcast. And some of you will actually be put to death. But that is our calling. And we have the Holy Spirit to get us through it. 